that uh, the former Brahma, the four Brahma Viharas have sort of uh, morphed together into uh, uh, variations on the theme of love. You know that I've been thinking more and more that um, of my heart as a very uh, uh, extraordinary musical instrument, very delicate, uh, capable of playing the most sublime kind of music, infinite variations on the theme of love, but only if it's in tune. And uh, like a delicate instrument that goes out of tune very easily. You know, I told you earlier, just before we sat, that I stopped in the good earth, the whole earth, and just, you know, in 10 minutes of shopping and coming out, my teeth are on edge from the input of sound. And the sound is even neutral. It's not, uh, it's not uh, threatening sound. Uh, not uh, they're not they haven't planned to make the sound uh, um, it's not personal they didn't say here comes Sylvia Borstein now we're making this bad sound I mean it's just it's just a lot of sound that's happening there uh, but all the things that upset the the mind and the heart and set it on edge and so really uh, what everybody has said about if what Judy has said and then Anne said if we sit for a while and focus the attention the focusing itself settles the mind down. That's very much what this meditation re uh, research that was published last Sunday in the New York Times. Really uh, most amazing kind of research with, with monks sitting in MRI machines. Uh, if you've ever been in an MRI machine, you know it makes terribly loud noise. Clunk, 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 clunk. So sitting with that clunking and really getting the mind to settle itself down. So the article really talking about being able to return the mind to a place of equanimity and a place of balance. They talked about that specific um, practice of practicing loving kindness. They talked about f practicing focusing the attention such as on a breath. But I think it's really important that focusing on loving thoughts is another way of reestablishing calm in the mind. Mm -hmm. That somehow the mind becomes adversarial, not when it's challenged, not even at someone, but it just gets feisty. Um, this is a, I, I'll tell you the story. I, I actually have some, I want to talk about why we're doing this meditation to begin with, and I'll tell you up front, is because I think we need enough heart to be able to look at the suffering in the world, the incredible amount of suffering in the world, and do something about it. And I'll tell you the, what, in the, in, the, in the face of the extraordinary, vast suffering of the world, I'm going to tell you the most trivial of suffering stories. <laughs> I was sitting um, yesterday, in uh, in my room up in you know northern Sonoma County, perfectly beautiful. I live out in the country. I live I I, I ride in a room that um, is out on my deck, and it's one of those rooms that you stick onto a house that you see in the back of Sunset Magazine. It's all glass. I see out all over the hills, and it's perfectly lovely. And I'm sitting at my computer, and I'm writing a book called The Well Tempered Heart, actually. And I'm writing phrases like, uh, there is no refuge more secure than one's own benevolent heart. And I am simultaneously thinking murderous thoughts about <laughs> the red-headed woodpeckers that are diligently 
drilling holes in the wall of my house. They are. This, it is September and October, and that's what red-headed woodpeckers, the acorn woodpeckers do. They drill holes. They drill in trees. My husband stands on the deck and he says, look, I'll cut a deal with you. Drill in the trees. I will put out food all winter. Stay off my house. They don't speak English or they won't cooperate. They are drilling the house. They have made dozens of holes all over the house. Now, several years ago, we've been there 20 years. It's the worst this year. Several years ago, someone said, you know, they really only do this on the south side of the house because they know to do this on the south side of the house. It's very clever. They make the holes and they put in certain acorns that have larval worms in them. And these kinds of worms will hatch just in time in the spring for when the baby woodpeckers are hatching. So they will come back, get the worms for these baby woodpeckers in the spring. So they have to put the acorns, they have to know which ones have the worms, they have to know where they put them. And they put them, uh, it says in all the books, on the south side of the house because it's warm there and the sun is the best. A couple of years ago, at some considerable expense, we had some company come out and put netting all over the south side of the house because then they don't like to stand in the netting so it dissuades them from being here. This year, they're all around the house. They forgot about the south side. They're drilling away, and I see them. You know, I'm sitting out there, and I see them just drilling away. And I hear them also, rat-a-ta-tat, rat-a-ta-tat, rat-a-ta-tat. I hear them all around the house. If I hear and I go out and I shout, they run away. But then by the time I'm back at my computer, they're back drilling again. And I'm sitting and I'm thinking about revenge. And I'm writing about there is no refuge more secure than the benevolent heart, and I'm thinking revenge. And I call the, um, I call the bird store in Santa Rosa. I say, what can I do? And they say, they're supposed to stay on the south side of the house. <laughs> but they're not doing it. So nothing much you can do. So I call the man who um, built my house 20 years ago. I said, Tom, what can we do? He said, well, I'll have to come out. I'll come at the end of the week, and I'll bring this gummy stuff, and I'll fill in all the holes all over the house. And that way, because if you don't do it, when the rains come, the rain is going to come right in through these holes, and it's going to rot the inside walls. Okay, great. So I'm sitting there, and here comes another big red-headed woodpecker swoops down right onto my wall right in front of me, and I think, aha. <laughs> you don't know. Just you wait. Right away, I have you foiled. And, uh, but then instead of resuming the drilling, I see that he is putting an acorn in my wall. He's having a little hard time. He's got it in his mouth. He's having a hard time getting it exactly into the hole. He's having to work at it. He's perched on the wall, moving it around. Finally, and I'm, and I'm watching him, and I'm thinking, careful, don't drop it. And he puts it in the wall. And then I feel good, and then I think, wait a minute, wait. Uh, then I think, wait a minute, uh, Tom is coming next week, and he's going to cover up all these holes. And when this woodpecker comes back in the spring to get these worms to feed his or her babies, so all of a sudden I'm thinking I have to move. Because <laughs> in, so here is a very big problem. 
It's a very, it's a fundamental problem. I am convinced that there is no more refuge more secure than one's own benevolent heart. I'm also convinced it's very hard to keep it benevolent when it feels under threat. I want the woodpeckers to thrive. I want my heart to stay intact. I do not want to think murderous thoughts. They don't feel good. And I'm doing it anyway. Because under threat, the body responds way faster than it thinks about it. It takes uh, all the brain research that you probably have been reading about in emotional intelligence and more recently in Dan Goldman's new book, um, Destructive Emotions, that the kinds of uh, messages that are uh, messages of threat get to that part of the brain that really are connected to the limbic system way faster than they get to the more uh, advanced part of the brain where you can think things over. That we get startled and we get mad because that's what we do when we get frightened. All the uh, variations of mad are variations of having been frightened. We get startled and we respond like in a self-protective way. We're supposed to. Uh, even people play sometimes. Uh, you come and you pass by a door and someone jumps out and says, boo, and it frightens you. And it's just a joke. Or you go, it's a surprise party and you open the door, you think you're just coming home for a quiet evening at home. And you open the door and there's 40 of your friends there in a whole party and they say, surprise. And actually you don't feel that good in that moment. It's overwhelming. There's a part of you that says, ah, and then you get used to it. I think that the kind of um, uh, immediate response, which is the response of, mm, is that we share with all sentient beings down to the lowest level of organization. In Dan Goldman's first book, uh, Emotional Intelligence, uh, where he originally taught, talked about how those kinds of uh, messages get to the amygdala, which is the place in the brain that uh, is in charge of the limbic system. They get there 10 times faster than they get to the part of the brain that thinks it over. We're mad before we know we are. And then we think it over. I think that's a little bit what happened yesterday. I kept getting startled and my house has holes in it and I'm banging and there's nothing I can do. I talked to a friend and I said, you know, um, maybe I'm just taking out on these woodpeckers. Maybe they're a convenient local place to be mad. Because I'm also mad at the political situation because I'm afraid of what's going on and I'm afraid of what's going on in the world and I'm afraid of what I'm reading in the newspapers and all over the place and in my email from all my friends who send me all of the alternative emails that in, in addition to my alarm and dismay about the regular press are... Um, I said, maybe, and I'm also, yeah, I have stuff in my personal family that I wish were another way and I can't fix it. There are all levels of things that I wish were another way and I can't fix my family so that they're exactly what I want. I can't fix my world so it's exactly what I want. And I can't fix these woodpeckers either. And maybe the woodpeckers are the only ones that I can conveniently <laughs> do this whole angry about. My friend said, no, I don't think it's either or. I don't think it's the woodpeckers instead of. I think it's the woodpeckers on top of <laughs> all those things. And what's more, when I thought about it a lot, 
I think it's also the fact that the limbic system does not read a difference between my family and the woodpeckers and the world situation as far as wars or hunger or inequality, anything that's wrong in the world. It just reads not good, threat, alarm, mad. It doesn't differentiate. Um, I think probably it's cumulative. I think probably it's cumulative that um, that probably the amount of dismaying information, whether it's there's one more hole out on my wall or one more email about what we don't know that is happening and should, um, that the, the level of alarm goes up. But I think that's why it, it's, uh, first of all, for me, it's an imperative to have a practice that can reorganize myself a little bit so at least in the moment I could make clear decisions, not only about what to do about the woodpeckers, but what to do about my family, what to do about the world, how can I make a difference, what can I do that doesn't cause more pain in an already overburdened world. I think that that's really the main practice that I think about, is what I am doing now going to cause more pain in an already overburdened with pain world? And more am I able to love. When I read this um, article about the monks and their meditation, I was very happy to see that they talked about doing loving-kindness meditation. Because I think it's more than, I think that often, uh, this is going to a very large audience of people, many of whom don't know about meditation. I think that often meditation is thought of as being something that's going good for your stress level. For 50 years, the stress, I think, people began to talk about stress, if I remember, in the 1950s, the began all the psychosomatic illness literature, and 50 years of talking about stress. I don't think people weren't stressed before. They had other kinds of stresses, stresses of poverty, stresses of illness, stresses of all kinds of the same stresses that people have had since the beginning of people. But maybe in the last 50 years, uh, something about the way the economy has changed and family structure has changed. There are a lot of things that have changed. And I am not a sociologist, but um, I think it's very important for me to talk about um, attention to stress. But attention to stress in order to take care of our own personal health and well-being, but on behalf of the world, my, my own health and well-being. It's going to be what it is, you know, just maybe I make it a little better, a little worse. But I'm so inspired by the idea that each of us is changing our hearts on behalf of all beings. Otherwise, it's such a small amount that we do that it's always on behalf of all beings. I mean, it's not that I have to make a dedication of it, but that I know it really inspires my practice. I remember uh, one of my friends and teachers, Joseph Goldstein, saying first time that he heard one of his teachers say that, uh, you know, you realize, of course, that you're not practicing yourself. You realize you're, you're practicing for all, all beings. He said, you know, I sat right up tall. He said, you just inspired me so much. I started to look around the room at people I didn't know and say to myself, my practice is for them. I'm doing this for them. It really kept me diligent and alert and energetic. 
Does that make a difference for you if you think about that? Ray, what? Sylvia, uh, <coughs> you asked earlier about the, the meditation. And um, you know, I come here, I come for a long time, the Wednesday morning, and I look for the aha moment. Uh -huh. And the aha moment happened when you said um, uh, in the meditation practice, uh, people can decide to change their mindset. Remember the rabbit story? When you, when you I do remember the rabbit story. <laughs> yeah. And you made a conscious choice yeah. when you went in to tell all the bad things that happened and to stress that the rabbit, yeah. the rabbit jumped over your car. Yeah. And uh, the aha moment came when we started doing meditation. I am so fidgety, as somebody said. Yeah. Today, I don't know whether I was sleeping or not. I hope I was. But I, would, I just kept consciously making the decision to go back to the breath, back to the breath. And that's what I'm doing here, trying. And I'm now conscious to make a decision to be optimistic. Mm -hmm. So somebody who lives a life of pessimism mm -hmm. takes a lot of courage and a lot of guts. And you th but to ch make that decision to change it, you know, it gets me politically active. It gets me positive with my family. And the aha came is that's what I'm trying to do here, is just to control the mind to where I want it to focus mm -hmm. versus get trapped in all the professional crap that happened to me this week. Uh -huh. and, uh, and make the decision that, uh, you know, with my kid, my wife left for the week, and she's mine, and I got them. Boom, focus. You know, get in there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to tell this, I'm going to make a very short summary, Ray, for the people who don't hear, because you don't have a recording device, a, a amplifying device, that talking about the, the decision to have as a practice, I am going to put my mind on something salubrious. I'm just going to pick out something good in this moment. I think it's a very crucial point because it's not about repression and it's not about suppression. It's about choice. <laughs> and it's a very big difference. And I really think sometimes when I think about liberation, I think it, for myself, I feel so trapped when my, my attention is caught in some loop. And I can't take it out from there and put it in something else. And you know, sometimes, sometimes uh, I, you know, I certainly know for myself it's a basic tenet of it's one of the three insights that the Buddha taught. But it's one of the insights that everybody in the world knows, Buddha or not, that um, if we struggle with something, we suffer. If it's beyond our control and you try to struggle with it, you suffer. Everybody knows that. But the thing is, I still struggle with things. And so do we all, I think. Every once in a while, I get caught in a struggle. And I even know in the moment, if I let this go, I'd be free. I'd be okay. But I can't. You know, it's something like uh, the, the real thing in the mind that's happening is that the mind, for whatever reason, has grabbed onto something, and it won't let it go. It feels exactly the other way. It feels like some thought has come in sort of from left field, grabbed the mind and we'll let it go, and it's shaking it up. Be able to say, I am free to take my attention, not say you're not here, I see you, but come back later. I don't want to deal with you right now. <laughs> right now, I want to do this. So the, that kind of, uh, the word for it is malleability of mind. Just, you know what malleable means, like clay is malleable. Um, you don't have to be stuck somewhere. And if I think about all of the techniques that we do, as ways to unstick the mind from where it gets stuck. And one of the ways is to practice uh, loving thoughts, compassionate thoughts, as Anne was saying, because it 
it bucks up the, the mind, the heart a little bit. I didn't even practice compassionate thoughts yesterday. I just had one compassionate thought. I looked up and I saw this diligent woodpecker trying to put that acorn in that hole. And all of a sudden, without planning to, I'm mad at that acorn, that woodpecker. But there he is, or she, trying to put that acorn into the wall. And all of a sudden, I hear my mind say, careful, don't drop it. And I am helping it with my thought. And the realization that I was just changed the whole moment for me. It's as if a big bell rang and it said, remember this, Sylvia? You do actually have a sweet and loving heart. You are a compassionate person. You, just like you thought that bad thought on the woodpecker, you thought murder on the woodpecker spontaneously <laughs> without thinking it over. You thought compassion on the woodpecker spontaneously without thinking it over. Now you have choice A or choice B. What do you want to do? So clearly I'm in a much better shape if I'm helping the woodpecker and I'm looking at it because it gets actually bigger than the woodpecker. If I look at it, if I'm not caught in the grip of fury, as I'm realizing I get picked up by that thought and I think, wow, look at that. First of all, I feel better about myself. I don't feel good if I'm feeling vengeful. And then, because my mind relaxes in the moment, I start thinking about what a far out thing it is that these woodpeckers know how to do this. It's a far out thing. They know what season to do it. They know what kind of acorns to get, the size of the hole to make. They don't come with the acorns until the hole is the right size, so they're a little bit of an engineer. They know mostly, well, they're supposed to know which side of the house. They seem to have forgotten. <laughs> but, but mostly they know, and they know how to do this. It's a very, and you know, no one spoke to them as far as I could. They didn't go to an acorns woodpecker school and learn. They just knew how to do it at the right time. So there's something extraordinary about that. You think, wow, this is amazing. They uh, don't get a headache. That's what I don't They don't get a headache. <laughs> They don't go to chiropractors. My husband said we could get siding next year. We can recover the whole side of the house. It looks like wood, but it's fake wood. So now I feel worried that they'll come and bang their beaks on it, and they'll hurt themselves. <laughs> I said they'll probably figure it out. But the, the really important lesson for me is that lesson of reconnecting accidentally with my own good heart, because it's so reassuring. I don't have to actually convince myself I have it or sit there and think what kind of a fraud meditation teacher am I writing a book on loving kindness and I'm thinking murder. I'm thinking murder because in this moment I'm challenged and my viscera is thinking murder. I personally, well I personally was also thinking murder along with my viscera. But then when you notice this other thing, I feel my heart and then I stop thinking murder. Then I start thinking you know, maybe I won't cover the holes. I don't know what I'm going to I'll probably cover the holes. I don't want my house to fall down. But to discover a little bit of the latitude of mind and the bigness of mind, I think what, what, um, what Judy was talking about, you look out and you think it's a big, beautiful world out there, which inspires me to do something to fix it. Uh, it's overwhelming when you think about what's wrong in the world. There's a... A book I wanted to bring to show to you would be of limited interest, maybe not to everybody. A friend of mine wrote it. It's called This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. <laughs> uh, uh, 
actually, he's a uh, he's a uh, local man. His name is Alan Liu. He's the rabbi of Congregation Beth Shalom in San Francisco, and he wrote this book. Uh, it, it's come out just now, uh, just before the New Year, because there's a particular practice in the Jewish calendar that starts. Um, actually, it starts seven weeks before Rosh Hashanah, seven weeks before the new year, and it proceeds through the 10 days, the 15, 23 days after uh, the first of the year, Rosh Hashanah. So specific practices through all of this time. But the, the, the overriding practice is called the Days of Awe as a Journey of Transformation. And the overriding practice is that of moral inventory and rededication of the heart to kindness, and in all kinds of ways. It's built in liturgically. It's built in. It's built into the cycle of uh, of scripture readings. Uh, and he and I, by the way, have been uh, talking about his book together. We'll be at the uh, uh, Marin Jewish Community Center next Monday night. If you want to come. It's mostly me interviewing him to have him talk about different aspects of the book, but we do a nice job together. Anyway, um, this is real, and you're absolutely unprepared. And what he, the the point that he makes so dramatically, uh, he did the other night as well, is that um, there's a part of uh, what underlies the passion in this whole. Um, part of the cycle of the year is the idea of there isn't enough time to change the heart. Really, now is the time. That the whole of the liturgical year, week after week, are different ways to change the heart. You know, when we come around to the springtime and we talk about uh, all of the springtime religious rituals of uh, reviving the heart and uh, renewing the heart and restoring the heart, and letting go of the bitterness and forgiveness practices of all the spring rituals. Talk about the wintertime rituals of lighting the dark in the, in, in the end of December, about the inside ritual of illuminating the heart and seeing what we haven't seen about it. I think all of the great religious lineages really mark the seasons. But here we are really looking at the seasons in the Northern Hemisphere, the season is dying. The summer is dying. The hills are have been brown. The vineyards where I live are all brown and changed color. The grapes are mostly collected. It's a time of really thinking, where am I in my life? And uh, the awareness of the closeness of death. I look at the plants out on my uh, on my deck. I have a I grow flowers outside where I sit, and I look at them, and for the most part, they last long because we're California, but they're starting to die. Even in September, they're starting to die. And you look out and you think, well, that's another season all gone, and that's another season all gone. And there's something of the imperative of the shortness of life, really, if this is the practice of transforming the heart on behalf of making a difference. There's not that much time. I, I came um, down this morning. This happens to me all the time. I mostly do not listen to the news on the radio. But I turned on the traffic at one point because it was crowded up in Santa Rosa. I wanted to see how it was going to be further on. And there was a terrible traffic accident this morning over uh, in the East Bay. 
and um, the the bulk of the uh, ongoing coverage about it was about alternative routes that people might take in order to get to work because certain freeway was completely closed. And two people got killed. And they said there were two fatalities and you might want to take this diverting highway and that. And I, I imagine they have to do that because they really have to tell people how to get to work. And I'm often thinking, I wish we would just stop for a minute and think about how would it be if the if the broadcaster at that point said, you know, two people died, um, and we don't know their names yet, but somewhere there are two people's families that expected them to come home today that aren't going to see them again. They weren't sick, their lives weren't imperiled, but everybody's life is imperiled, you know, all the time. There's a line in the Dhammapada that says, whoever <coughs> understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. And I, I keep every year, maybe even ongoing throughout the year, deciding that I understand that in a different way. I, it's, getting, it's getting clearer to me. I used to think um, whoever senses impermanence ceases to be contentious means if you have really had an understanding that what's ever going on isn't going to last very long, because everything changes, you wouldn't fight with it because it's you know it's not necessary to fight. It's going to change. Whatever it is, it, it, this too shall pass. That kind of thinking. I actually think, um, at least this morning, I was thinking about. Well, I think about how fragile this whole our personal lives are, our personal happiness. The happiness of this whole, and, and life of this whole planet, so fragile, that adding to it any contention seems so unkind. You know, it's like an ailing world, an ailing, everything's ailing in a certain way. I don't know if I actually have the heart to read this to you, but I'll show it to you a little bit. I, I have a thought, I have a feeling that uh, it's harder and harder for me, I think for you, to hide from an awareness of suffering in the world. You know, that uh, it's something, it, it, sometimes I, I, I look at this very closely because I'm not sure I want to trust it. Uh, I, I don't want it to be that I'm in a personal period of depression, and therefore it's looking really bleak, but actually for everybody else that bleakness is not the truth, so don't speak it, Sylvia. I'm not sure, you know, I'm, uh, I actually know what I feel like when I feel depressed, and uh, I feel sad. This is not the sadness of a physiological depression, but this is sadness. And uh, I monitor I don't watch television at all. I listen to the radio very little. I read a whole newspaper every day, and a good one. And that's, I figure, enough. And then I have my friends with the email <laughs> updates all the time. And I do read the, all the ones that come on from, from moveon.org, and I really hope that you do too, and that you sign them. I'm so excited if they write me one day and said, we need 100,000 signatures, and they write me back the next day and say, we got it. 
I feel good about this. I have the same feeling that it's not all lost, so please. So um, I have a subscription to National Geographic, and it's been coming for years. I haven't got the heart somehow. I think the people at National Geographic <laughs> will personally feel bad after 40 years if I cancel my subscription. And uh, they're, like they're all sitting there knowing that I have the longest subscription of anyone in the world. But, uh, and also I like the photography and it's very good writing. This, is a, this current issue with zebras on the cover. Do you have this? It's amazing. This is a picture of a Guatemalan baby in a cardboard box. And it says, um, this baby is not a slave. This is an issue about slavery in the world. The numbers of people who are slaves. This baby is not a slave. It has a tat tattered cardboard box for a cradle and a corrugated metal shack for a family home. This boy in Guatemala City starts life facing tough odds. He could be stolen or sold, then adopted illegally, part of an international process that's become a lucrative business for some Guatemalan attorneys acting as middlemen. Or he might grow up as one of the 44% of Guatemalan children who are chronically malnourished, one of the 40% who live in households without toilets or means of removing garbage, one of the 40% who face adulthood, unable to read or write. Three billion people, nearly half the world's population, struggle to live on less than $2 a day. I have to believe that this can change, says social worker Marissa Ugarte. She speaks quietly of three boys living in a Mexican shelter, one 12 years old, the other two no more than 15. All had been shuttled between Tijuana and San Diego, California, and prostituted to pedophiles. Ugarte directs the Bilateral Safety Corridor Coalition, a network of 62 U.S. and Mexican organizations fighting trafficking. People are beginning to see, Ugarte says, that slavery is still real. It's too horrible, actually. In Brazil, slaves make charcoal used to manufacture steel for automobiles and other machinery. In Myanmar, which is Burma, slaves harvest sugarcane and other agricultural products. In China, child slaves manufacture fireworks. In Sierra Leone, slaves mine diamonds. I was born a slave. My name is Salma. I was born in Mauritania. In 1956, my parents were slaves and their parents were slaves of the same family. As soon as I was old enough to walk, I was forced to work all day, every day. Even if we were sick, we had to work. Still later, while I was still a child, I started taking care of the first wife of the head of the family and her 15 children. Later, even if one of my own children was hurt or in danger, I didn't dare help my child, because I had to care for the master's wife's children first, I was beaten very often with a wooden stick or a leather belt. Finally, this goes on and on, I met a man in the market who told me that Senegal was just across the river. I decided I had to try to escape again. I ran to the river with a man, where a man with a small wooden boat agreed to take me to Senegal. There I made my way to a safe house run by a former slave from Mauritania. 
I stayed in Senegal for a few years, earning my keep by doing housework, but I never felt safe. When I got to the U.S., I worked braiding hair. The first time I was paid for work I had done, I cried. I had never seen a person paid for her work before in all my life. It was a very good surprise. When I came first to the U.S., I was afraid that I would be sent back. Then I met my lawyer, and a doctor helped me, and Kevin Bales of Free the Slaves and the Bellevue Program for Survivors of Torture. The judge at my asylum hearing was honest and did his job. He demanded proof, but then he listened and paid attention. I would like to be a citizen of the United States one day, and I want my children to be citizens. Here I have freedom of expression. In Mauritania, there was no freedom of expression. I was afraid to speak out even when I was in Senegal. I had to be cautious. I had to be far, far, far away. Here now I can speak out. I'm reading that piece to you, not the broken promise of children working in Chinese factories or not the equally terrible pictures of mothers and daughters hauling bricks in southeast India and not the terrible one of uh, Ukrainian women um, being prostitutes in uh, being brought to Israel to be prostitutes. They're all horrible stories. I'm reading that particular woman's story because um, I did listen to PBS a little bit coming down this morning. Heard about a move afoot also post the events of the last two years, saying, let's not let anybody else in. So sort of isolationist principle. Let's be afraid of foreigners. Um, let's tighten up on immigration because they're the people who are going to really coming with terror. I wonder how many people here, I am, my grandparents were immigrants to this country. My father was an immigrant to this country. How many people have a parent who's an immigrant to this country? Grandparent immigrant to this country. Great-grandparent to all of us. How many people came on the Mayflower? <laughs> Most of us are the children of immigrants who came from tyranny somewhere else. And I feel so strongly now that this has that we that the, the 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 vision that they had of what it meant to really be able to be in a place where you were safe with rights, with liberty and justice for all, has to last for my grandchildren. And really, seriously, that's the kind of freedom I would like the whole world to learn from us. It used to be a joke in my family. People used to imitate my grandfather in his extremely broken English saying the Pledge of Allegiance, because when you took your citizenship test, you had to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And uh, he spoke English so poorly. I mean, he didn't speak English, but they somehow he could figure out the answers to the questions they asked, and he memorized the Pledge of Allegiance. But you think about it, that's already, um, it's like complicated words to say. And they would, and it with, with uh, I mean, my family fooled around a lot. They mocked and teased, and they mocked and teased how he did it, but he got a citizenship and he voted. So there's a way in which I feel obligated to 
keep myself aware of the pain in the world. It makes it hard for me to go in, in um, shopping centers and see the tremendous amount of consumerism and think about what child where is making this. And I, and I feel a little conflicted about telling you about these stories, but I don't know why, I, I, I have such a feeling of passion about um, doing this practice in order to be able to say to people, the world is in a dreadful shape. Let's hold ourselves together, keep it together so that we can make a difference and change it. Um, this is the strangest thing just popped into my head. Gary Cooper and Paulette Goddard, 50 years ago, seriously, 50 years ago, were in a movie called, uh, more or less 50, Unvanquished or Unconquered, one of those two. Uh, it was a Western romantic thriller. I can see it in my mind's eye. Um, I read it and then I saw the movie and uh, 30 years ago probably, I saw it in, um, in a, a movie house in, uh, in Vienna and it had, uh, in Geneva and it had French and German subtitles underneath both. And uh, it's so politically incorrect, this particular film, because Paulette Goddard in the, I mean, we would never, we'd be appalled if anybody made a movie now where uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cowboy movie. So Paulette Goddard has been captured by some tribe and is being, I mean, we would never show a thing like that. And she's bound in a stake and it's awful. But I remember that the scene in it uh, of, of uh, Gary Cooper creeping along uh, up because he's supposed to be tied up somewhere and he creeps along in, in the midst of all this ceremony, comes behind her and he says, keep it together. <laughs> Don't let on that I'm here, hold on. And I saw that translated into two languages underneath. I remember the German but not the French. And it was, and because the subtitle came just, you know, as it does a little bit after he says it, I laughed. And then, you know, a couple of seconds later, the whole movie theater laughed. But the whole thing was so bizarre. But it came into my mind when I think maybe my spiritual practice is to keep it together so that I can figure out how to get out of a tight situation. I think the world is in a very tight situation. I think we are tremendously blinded by greed and hatred and delusion, that, that ignorance is tremendous. But I actually have the feeling that everybody's bottom line heart is just the same as mine with the woodpecker yesterday. That if we actually checked in, that everybody bottom line says, thrive, make it, when they're not afraid, or when they're vulnerable. And we see things with different eyes that was, a, that was a discouraged eye. I want to tell you a very good eye that I had the other day. I was uh, in the surgery waiting room. Uh, just by coincidence, Rosemary was in US, uh, UCSF with Michael on Monday for a very serious surgery. I was, and she doesn't know about this, but actually I knew about it during the time. I was in another part of the building with my husband who was having a very minor surgery, in a day surgery where you go in and come out that same day. So I'm sitting in a waiting room with a whole bunch of people. 
and I'm looking around, and uh, everybody's sitting and doing their own thing, and I'm sitting, I actually was sitting and meditating for the time that he was gone. Then I look around, and you don't know anything about these people, but you know that everybody's there. With a, nobody is there for a, you know a good, a happy reason. Everybody would rather not be there. Everybody's got some problem, probably a hope, not so big. Some of them look like they had serious problems, but they're there. And you don't know these people, but you're sitting quietly. I'm sitting quietly, and I'm meditating, and open my eyes. I realized that spontaneously, I'm hoping that they're going to come out good, whoever they are. And I thought to myself a little bit, you know, I'm such an expert conversationalist. I could go talk to one of these people, pass the time of day, you know, how are you, how are you doing? Normally, I talk to people all over the place. But, you know, I I don't have to go talk to that people. I'll just pray for them. They don't know I am. I was having the best time wishing this one well, that one well, this one well, that one well. I had my eyes closed for a while meditating, and then I opened my eyes, and you know when I said to you just you could open your eyes, I often have the habit of opening my eyes and looking up. So after some while, I open my eyes, I look up, there's this huge, and my first thing meets my view, is this huge, purple, inflated, Curious George. You know, you know Curious George the monkey? It's a big, purple, plastic Curious George with a curly tail and everything, and he's all blown up. So I open my eyes, and a big Curious George up on the ceiling. And his string is coming down here. And the, clearly the mother of a child who's having some surgery turned out to be a dental procedure, actually, was sitting there with the child's blanket and waiting for the big Curious George up there. And I thought my heart would break over that Curious George. I thought, this, well, you know, you looked at it and you knew someone has brought this for some child who's got some trouble getting fixed, and the child is going to wake up and open their eyes and see that Curious George up there, too. And I think people are so dear. Somebody thought of making that Curious George. Now, I want you to see that because if I was in another mood, I could have think, where was that made, that Curious George? Were the workers paid enough? And uh, was it a, you know, do they have health insurance, those workers in the factory with the Curious George? It's actually what I choose to make out of the situation. But I was actually feeling relieved that that my particular person was probably, in all likelihood, going to be fine. It was a minor thing. I was also looking around. That, uh, it's nice to go to San Francisco because the population is so much more diverse than here. And uh, the, the medical team at UCSF is just wonderfully diverse. Five people were involved in my husband's procedure of five different ethnicities. And it made me so happy about that. So I think to myself, I could look this way and see that. I could look at the National Geographic and see that. I could look at that. I actually think I have to look at all of it. I have to look at the National Geographic in order to, and every place else, and read the emails, and you know, read my newspaper. I have to look at all of that so that I'll know that I have to do something. And I have to look at whatever is going to re-inspire hope and faith in my heart so that I can do something about it. And I have to do those kinds of practices that are going to calm down my mind so I can figure out what to do. Like we all sat here and just quietened down the mind by bringing the attention back and forth to the breath. And then we think, okay, I can do this. I can do that. I think we're making our minds better. I thought I'd read you one little piece from uh, Wendell Barry. 
Don't worry and fret about the crops. After you've done all you can for them, let them stand in the weather on their own. If the crop of any one year was all, a man would have to cut his throat every time it hailed. But the real products of any year's work are the farmer's mind and the cropland itself. If he raises a good crop at the cost of belittling himself and diminishing the ground, he has gained nothing. I have to begin over and again the next spring worse off than before. Let him receive the season's increment into his mind. Let him work it into the soil. The finest growth that farmland can produce is a careful farmer. Make the human rice a better head. Make the world a better piece of ground. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.